Thanks, Greg. Appreciate that. I can't tell for sure, but I, I believe the last time I heard that song sung as a special number, I was uh, a young boy in, uh, in the free church up in Rapid City, and two uh, elderly ladies who were twin sisters uh, who spoke the mother tongue, the, the language of heaven, according to them, Swedish, uh, uh, sang that special in Swedish, and I'm a little kid going, what? Uh, but uh, it's a great song with a great message. <laughs> so grab your Bibles, open up to the book of Esther. Last uh, Sunday, we began a new series called The Covert God, and the dictionary defines covert as not openly shown, engaged in, or avowed. And that's exactly what we see in the, uh, this particular book of the Bible. God's name does not appear. No miracles are uh, apparent. None of the main characters uh, speak directly about God um, or about following him. Instead, everything about God is seen in the actions and activities uh, of those who trust him. And as for God himself, his actions are noticed behind the scenes. Uh, Rather than intervening directly in the affairs of men through uh, spectacular miracles, he accomplishes his will uh, through ordinary people doing ordinary things. And and oftentimes, it's only by looking back on the events can you see the fingerprints of God and how he was working and guiding and directing the proceedings to fulfill his purposes. And again, that's what theologians, as Greg mentioned, calls the providence of God in action. Providence is that unseen work of God that sustains, directs, and and protects His creation. And and in a special way, uh, guides and moves circumstances and people to bring about His plans in the world. So in our own lives... Uh, if, if we know how to look, we can see the providence of, of God at work. And Esther, of course, teaches us how we can get better at spotting God's providence. Uh, so uh, that's part of our purpose in studying this book. Before we get uh, too deep into the story and what's happening, let's take a moment and just commit this time of preaching um, to God. Father God, we are so thankful to be able to enjoy Uh, this opportunity of worship this morning, worship through song, through fellowship, through giving, and now through the study of your word. And we pray, God, that your spirit would be free to work in our hearts, in our minds, encourage us, challenge us, strengthen us, build us up, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I was uh, a little kid, there was a place in Rockerville, just uh, south of Rapid City there, that hosted a a melodrama uh, during the summer tourist season. And and I remember um, um, our parents, my parents, took us kids there once for a special family outing. And the melodrama that we saw was called Aaron Slick from Pumpkin Creek. And uh, not Pumpkin Creek, Pumpkin Creek. And uh, if you've never been to melodrama, uh, you're missing out, man. You should do it sometime. A melodrama is a live action play that is purposely uh, way overacted uh, with well-defined characters. 
I mean, you can watch a movie nowadays, and sometimes you have a hard time figuring out who's supposed to be the good guy and who the bad guy is, because, you know, the bad guys do good deeds, and the good guys are doing all kinds of bad stuff and breaking the law, and you're like, wait, who's who in this movie? Not in a melodrama. You know right up front uh, all about that. In fact, at the very beginning, right, uh, they introduce the main characters with the bonus that the audience gets to be involved in this whole thing. Uh, They first tell you, hey, uh, here's so-and-so. This is the the good guy. And whenever he comes on stage, everybody in the audience is supposed to cheer. (sighs) Hey, you know, it's the good guy, right? And then, of course, uh, we meet the beautiful, sweet young maiden who will, of course, fall in love with the good guy, although that's a little bit in question as the play goes on. And, and when she comes on the stage, everybody's supposed to go, ah, you know. And, and, and then finally, there's the villain, the evil, uh, scheming, conniving bad guy, in this case, Aaron, uh, Crick from, uh, Aaron, Aaron uh, Slick from Pumpkin Crick. And when he comes on the stage, everybody gets to boo and throw peanuts at him. And... You know, as a kid, that was my favorite part, was chucking peanuts at the bad guy. Um, I mean, we had some instructions. Like every bad guy, of course, he had his cape. And so he would come on and do his cape so he didn't get pelted with peanuts, and then you weren't allowed to throw them after that. Um, and, and, uh, but we had a great time. And uh, we don't get to chuck peanuts at the bad guy uh, in the story of Esther, and I would prefer if you didn't chuck them at me while I was talking about the bad guy. Um, but like a melodrama, in Esther, we have very clear-cut and defined characters. Esther uh, and, and a guy we'll meet later, Mordecai, are the good guys, with, of course, Esther having the, the top billing in that. They're the two heroes of the stories. Uh, then there's Haman. Haman is... The evil, scheming bad guy. But we actually don't get to meet either of these, any of these main characters uh, until Act Two uh, in in the play. Uh, Haman comes even a little later. The story actually opens up with some other characters, uh, and it begins with King Ahasuerus, who most often in this particular melodrama uh, appears to be a rather pompous but somewhat uh, dopey guy who makes a lot of bad decisions. Um, he's actually, uh, his character is actually a lot worse than that. We'll, we'll see that later on uh, in the story. Um, but the guy had to have some brains uh, because he was a powerful king ruling over a world empire. So, so check out uh, this from chapter 1. It says, in, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet. This is verse 3, if you're following along your Bible. He gave uh, a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. Now, I don't know about you, but when I hear the word banquet, uh, I, I think about uh, a, a single uh, meal served at a special event on a single evening. Unless you're talking about the TV dinners, then that's a separate thing. But, but you know, normally, you know, it's just one big meal. Uh, but uh, not, not this guy. I mean, uh, this thing went on for a half a year, 100 
an 80-day-long banquet. Now, um, uh, the, uh, the Roman and, and Greek historians, uh, we can find out from, from their historical records that this banquet actually had two main purposes. The first, which is the one that is evident uh, from our verse today, is that it was this opportunity for him as a king to show off, right? I mean, look at how the Bible describes it. It says that the king displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his majesty. I mean, he wanted all of these princes, the civic and the military leaders, he, he wanted all of them to see exactly how wealthy he was. Wealth, of course, being uh, in those, that culture an indicator of power. I mean, if you had a lot of wealth, you had a lot of influence and power, and this guy was oozing with it. And, and so he, he showed that all off. But... Um, uh, if you read, and, and again, like we did with Daniel, I encourage you to go home and read uh, Esther as a whole story, or at least read these chapters fully as we're going through them. Read chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 7 kind of describe a bit of the luxury that this guy was displaying and living in at that time. We'll just look at one verse. Verse 6 says this, There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Think about that. Anytime you're making your sidewalk out of mother of pearl and precious stones, you're a rich dude. I mean, this guy had the money. Now, Ahasuerus wanted to impress all these guys because of the second purpose of these meetings, which is what we find in the the Greek and Roman um, histories. He used this 180 days as a war council to plan an invasion of Greece. Persia was the unquestioned power in the east. But in the west, this pesky little country called Greece had been slowly rising in prominence and power and influence. And if Ahasuerus truly wanted to be the ruler of the whole world, and that's what he wanted, well, then he had to topple Greece. So he spent 180 days planning their war strategy. And then at the end of that time, well, then he gave a special banquet, a banquet proper. But again, this wasn't just a, a single meal event. Uh, look at verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So obviously, again, this was going to be one big honking party. Everybody from the greatest to the least, was invited to this in the citadel. So, it's, I mean, we're not talking your normal citizens out in the country. Uh, they could take care of themselves. But all these people that he invited in, they all got to be part of this great big party. And as per normal Asian etiquette at that time, the men and the women did not mingle together during this party. And so verse 9 tells us Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ahasuerus. Now, 
this verse right here is another place where uh, critics of the Bible uh, like to cry foul and say, oh, wait, hold on, you know, there's a problem. Uh, according to ancient records, the queen's name was a mistress, uh, not Vashti, and in fact, there is no record of any Vashti existing anywhere. Now, I've mentioned this before as we've come across a couple different spots in Scripture where this happens. This doesn't bother me at all because everywhere else that this has happened in Scripture, as more archaeological evidence comes to light, it has always, without fail, always confirmed what the Bible said where people thought the Bible was wrong until they got more evidence and they go, oh, I guess we were wrong, and the Bible was right. And so I have, I have no doubt that the same will happen in this particular instance. Um, when uh, and, and if uh, they uh, discover new and additional uh, archaeological information around the excavations of Susa, uh, I... I they will find what we need to confirm what's going on in Scripture. And by the way, if you're wondering where that's at, that's in Iran. That's where they're at. And they, and they are doing uh, excavation, continued excavation works around that citadel. Um, what I can tell you is that research has found out that the Persian word Vashti, which literally means beautiful one, was often used as a term of endearment, the way we might use the word, you know, honey or darling or, or sweetheart. And, and so this could have been a pet name that Ahasuerus used for his queen, and, and therefore anyone in the court who was familiar with the court, such as the, the author of this book, would have also been familiar of that name that he called her and, and, and might have used it. Or we, we may just have to await further archaeological evidence to, to clear this thing up for us. Either way, the point is still the same. The queen was throwing a party uh, of her own uh, for all of the women uh, of all these royal officials uh, and military leaders and everybody at the same time that the king was throwing his great big banquet. But trouble begins when the king had been drinking too much. Verse 10 says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine. That's a, a very nice and polite way of saying uh, that the guy was drunk as a skunk. Now, I, actually, I didn't even know if skunks got drunk or, or how they do that, but apparently they do, and, and you know, seven days of drinking, and this guy was plastered. He was plastered. And, and, and so... He was drinking, and trouble erupts. By the way, how common is that statement? I mean, think about it. How, how many problems, how many issues, how much misfortune has been caused because a person was drinking too much? Whenever I read, I like reading newspaper articles and stuff like this, and you just come across it time and time and time again. Whenever I read about somebody doing something really stupid, you know, like college student falls off dormitory roof, you know, uh, this type of thing, almost always 
in that same article, you will find the phrase, alcohol was involved. I, I mean, it just, it just follows one after another. And it doesn't take a great deal of research to figure out that there is a direct correlation between drinking too much and dumb decisions and actions. I mean, it's really a, a pretty simple formula, right? Increased drinking equals increased stupidity. That, that's, that's just the way it is. And, and this is nothing new with our culture, right? King Ahasuerus suffered from the same malady. His reasoning and his judgment went right out the window, and because of his drinking, he issued an incredibly ill-advised command. Check out verse 11. It says, He ordered his officials to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princess, for she was beautiful. Now, please understand, this wasn't simply a, hey, I want all you guys to meet my wife uh, type of thing. It says he wanted to display her so that all these other drunken men at the party could ogle her beauty. And there's a very good chance that what that meant was very little or no clothing for her. In fact, you, I mean, we can't be certain of this uh, from the text, but it's possible that her royal crown would have been her only adornment that she was allowed. Whatever the case, he was doing the exact opposite of what God calls husbands to do. In Ephesians chapter 5, these instructions are given to men. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. And now it's going to explain if you're wondering how Christ loved the church and how it is as you as a husband are supposed to love your wife, here's what that means. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she should be holy and blameless. You want to apply that to husbands? Husbands are supposed to guard the modesty and the purity of their wives. He should be working to keep her out of situations where lecherous men might take advantage of her, even with just their eyes. And when he fails to do that, it doesn't only just harm her, but obviously would negatively impact their relationship. And in our culture, this principle would apply even to dating prior to marriage. And obviously, while why each woman is, of course, responsible for her own choices, the man should take the lead in protecting her purity. Don't put your date in compromising circumstances such as a uh, lewd, inappropriate movie or an improper party. And don't do anything that would awaken or entice passions that are limited to and, and only supposed to be expressed in the marriage relationship. You will never regret 
the positive benefits uh, to your girlfriend, to your wife, by following a high standard in this area. And obviously, there can be lots of regrets when you don't. Ahasuerus, he didn't do this. And his command put Vashti in a, in a horrible predicament. And in that culture, uh, not only as a wife was she supposed to obey her husband, but of course everybody is supposed to obey the king. So uh, undoubtedly, uh, she expected that there would be, or at least very likely could be, severe repercussions for refusing, and yet refuse is exactly what she did. And we have no clue as to why she made that choice, no indication in Scripture what her thinking was about that. All we know is that she said no, and this royally ticked off the king. He, uh, we're told as you read through there, that, that his uh, wrath burned within him. Uh, rather than waiting until the party was over, so that he could let his emotions die down and he could sober up a bit before doing anything. His, his anger was so hot, it flashed so bright, that he wanted to act right away. And, and when it comes to making stupid decisions, anger has pretty much the same negative impact on our brain that alcohol does. Proverbs 14.7 warns us, A quick-tempered man acts foolishly. A little bit later in that same chapter, Solomon said, He who is slow to anger it has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Ahasuerus was quick to blow his stack when Vashti refused his command. Probably he was embarrassed, right, in front of all of these you know, officials that he was trying to impress. He should have been ashamed of himself. But instead, he turns his anger on Vashti because she did the right thing. So he gets a few of his top cabinet members together and he asks them, well, what should we do about Vashti's impertinence? And one of them pipes up right away and says, well, you know, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. How does he figure that? Well, you know, he thinks all the women that are at Vashti's party, all the wives of all of these officials and, and, and people that are there, right, they're going to see or at least hear about what Queen Vashti has done, and then they'll decide, well, they can treat their husbands with that same impudence. In other words, his advice is based on a fear of what might happen in his own relationship with his wife in marriage. So he offers up this suggestion to the king. He says, he says the king should issue a royal decree that cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and Persians. Remember where we heard that last? Cannot be changed. Daniel and the lion's den when they tried to, to make prayer illegal for that 30 days. This edict would remove Vashti from being queen and would banish her from the king's sight. He could never see uh, the king again. And in his angry and drunken state, the king goes, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And so he issues it as this uh, royal decree. Now, we have no idea exactly how much time elapsed between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, but, but look at what we read as chapter 2 starts. After these things, 
when the anger of, the, of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now, what we don't read there, but what is clearly implied, is that the guy was de- bummed out and depressed. He sobered up, his anger dwindled, and now his beautiful wife is gone. And there's nothing he can do about that because the law of the Medes and the Persians is irrevocable. We can learn a good lesson even from bad examples in Scripture. And I think a good lesson here is, is pretty clear. Rash and emotional decisions are rarely good decisions. So, I mean, what does that mean practically for you and me today? Well, well basically, it's a, a precaution for us for the future. Because chances are, are pretty good that at some point in time, you're going to find yourself in a position where you might be tempted to make an emotionally charged decision. Hopefully, you can uh, eliminate the detriment of being drunk, since that's something God wants all of us to avoid and, and stay away from. But you know what? You cannot eliminate from your life highly emotional time. They're going to happen. Things are going to come. There are going to be things that happen that wound your pride, that break your heart, that disappoint your soul. You will face extreme discouragement or very high tension or conflict or extreme demands or urgent situations that seem to call for immediate decisions. And in some, in fact, in maybe in many of those cases, anger may be involved, especially if there's any conflict. And remember, anger in and of itself is not a sin. I mean, it's, it's an emotion that is brought on by circumstances, by what's happening around you. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, Be angry and yet do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So that means there is a way to be angry without sinning. And one one of the ways uh, that we can avoid sin, avoid giving the devil an opportunity, right, is by not making a rash decision in a state of anger. Now, I, I don't want you to raise your hand here. We're better off probably not doing that. But how many of you have ever made a bad decision, said something stupid, or done something dumb out of anger? I'm guessing that'd be a whole bunch of us in here. So a a smart thing to do would be to set up a plan in advance knowing that It's going to happen. You are going to face an emotionally charged situation. And you're going to have choices to make when that thing happens. A plan should include something like, I will not make a decision without first stopping and praying about it. 
prayer will will force you to slow down and think. I mean, as you pour out your, your heart to God, explain to Him what you're feeling and what you're facing, what you're going through, it gives God a chance to speak into your heart and life. And nothing calms down anger and, and emotion like the voice of God. Beyond that, of course, God has promised when we seek Him, He will give us wisdom. And what a safeguard that is against making rash and stupid decisions. Perhaps a a second step you might take would be, I will not make a decision without consulting at least two godly people. I mean, that right there would, would eliminate a lot of rash decisions because it usually takes time to consult people. Not to mention that the Bible uh, clearly indicates and advocates seeking counsel in, in making important decisions. Proverbs eleven fourteen says, When there is no guidance, the people fall. But in an abundance of counselors, there is victory. And as you do that, I mean, again, I mean, clearly want to emphasize, you don't just seek advice from any old person, right? King Ahasuerus, he, he, got, he sought advice from people he knew would say, tell him what he wanted to hear. Seek advice from people that you know are, are mature in their faith, that you can trust to give you a godly and biblical answer, and then listen to them. If you don't want to pull an Ahasuerus in your life and end up, you know, living in regret over a rash decision, then set up a plan like this. And you have to have that plan of action in mind prior to the emotionally charged situation happening. Because once you're in that emotionally charged situation, that's a bad time to try to be thinking about a good plan for how to react. Yet you have to know what you're going to do in advance. And just one final thought here to wrap us back into this idea of providence. You've heard the old saying that hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, you know, that's you know, particularly true when you're actually trying to see and determine the providence of God. Oftentimes, in the midst of situations, it's hard to see it. But as you look back, oftentimes, you can see how God's hand was working. You know, Queen Esther, not even a part of the story yet, not not even queen yet, right? She has no idea that any of this is even going on. And yet God was working behind the scenes to get her into a position of power and influence for what would need to happen down the road. And in order to get her into that position, he first had to create an opening for that position. And so God used the sinful drunken anger of a king to make a foolish demand upon his wife. And he placed a a stubborn willfulness in Vashti to choose to to hold on to her own dignity and honor and, and to go against the accepted social convention of subservience to her husband and king of that time. And very likely, neither one of them could really tell you exactly why they made the choices they made. But what it was, was God working behind the scenes, manipulating the circumstances to bring about His will. I'm betting 
that each person here could take a look into your own history. And as you look back at things, you could see how God moved in circumstances to accomplish His purpose in your life. Those things that maybe at the time just appeared to be, you know, just those things that sort of just happened. But as you look back, you see, that's what God needed to do to get me where He has me right now. And isn't it encouraging to know that God is doing that even when you're not aware of what's happening? Just as Esther had no clue what was going on here. But it was all for her good and for His purposes that He would be glorified. God's doing that same thing in your life. Let's pray. Father God, there's some practical things we come across in this aspect of uh, Esther's story today. And we pray that you would encourage us and help in us in these, in these specific areas in our lives. It's so easy for us to get caught up in in the emotion of circumstances and situations to make decisions, to act rashly, to do things we would later regret. So God, help us to be able to see and recognize these things when they come and to have this plan in place that we might be people who make good and godly decisions even in tough times. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.